Christmas is a beautiful thing, filled with joy and laughter, family and friends. It's a beautiful day and a beautiful season, but it's so much more than that. Christmas is a belief that the God who made the world also loved the world, so much so that he sent his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is Christmas. Christmas isn't just a story to be told and then forgotten, but it's a story to be remembered and loved and lived. Christmas is a celebration, rejoicing in the light of the world who stepped into the darkness for all of us. Christmas is a time when all kinds of people from all kinds of places come together to remember Emmanuel, God with us. Christmas is an invitation. O come, all ye faithful. O come, all ye weary. O come, let us adore him. Christmas is about faith, hope, and love. Christmas is about Jesus. This is Christmas. to see God's Word this morning, turn to two places, Matthew chapter 1 and John chapter 1. Well, it's good to have the kids with us here this morning. It's always a joy to have them. Uh, hopefully, uh, the time when we take communion, uh, I'm hearing from the last gathering that uh, many of the children ask a lot of questions. It's a great learning opportunity for children uh, as we take communion this morning, so I hope you'll use that as a, a great opportunity. Uh, speaking of children uh, and what we're celebrating here today, so uh, our youngest grandson, he's five years old, he's in kindergarten, and there's a little girl there in his class named Bethlehem. That's her name. It's a real cool name. Uh, they call her Beth. And uh, so our grandson, uh, I don't know if he was flirting with her, I don't know how this conversation came about, but uh, he kind of went up to her and he said, you know, my dad's been to Bethlehem. And, uh, and, and that's good, because that was true. And while he was there, he met David and Goliath. He's one of those kids that's just going to keep on until you're impressed, you know, that kind of thing. But, uh, but anyways, it was so good to have the children here this morning. Today we continue the uh, series Christmas Guest List. And uh, if you look at the introduction, it's just what we've had uh, before. Over 2,000 years later, God is still inviting us into the Christmas story. The Christmas Im invitation is made possible through the miraculous birth of Jesus. So when you think about the Christmas story, we all know that it all hinges on Jesus himself. But the fact of the matter is this, when we begin to understand not only why Jesus came, but it's important to also understand how Jesus came to this world. And so before we get into how, I want us to look at why. We know this from, from a verse that many of you have memorized, many of you know it by heart, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave, that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So when you begin to really get your mind around it, the how is important. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. But the why he came is just as important when you begin to put it all together. Really when John 3, 16, I think this is the reason uh, many would have us memorize it, is because the whole Bible surrounds the content of that verse. You look at the Old Testament, and it talked about his future coming, and we'll talk more over that in just a moment. 
The Gospels actually recorded or reported his coming, while the rest of the New Testament gives the results of his first coming. The Gospels, Matthew and Luke, give us a detailed account of the first coming, while the Gospel of John tells us of his pre-existence before Bethlehem. So we see that there's the why, and it's very important we get our minds around the why, but today what I want to focus on is the how. How did he come to us? And the Bible is really nothing more than what we sang about this morning. Jesus left heaven and came to the earth, came to the earth, and we beheld his glory. But it's important for us to understand more than even that. And the Bible is very clear that he came by way of a virgin, a young virgin woman. And the thing I want you to understand today is not just the whole idea of the Mary and Joseph scene, but I want you to understand the theology that goes behind how Jesus came. So why is the virgin birth so important? Does the virgin birth really matter? Why was it so important that Jesus be born of a virgin? And is it true that he came from a virgin? So the first thing I want us to look at this morning is the virgin birth conceived. All through scriptures, all through the scriptures, we read about supernatural births. Isaac was born to Sarah in her mid-90s. Any of you ladies want to try to pull that one off? I don't think you have any takers there. Samson was born of a woman who was barren. Hannah was also barren when she gave birth to Samuel. Elizabeth, a barren woman, gave birth to John the Baptist himself. So supernatural births have been all through scriptures. Nothing new to scripture about a supernatural birth. But none like the miraculous birth of Jesus. He came by way of a virgin. And so in Luke chapter 1, we read that the angel appeared before Mary and told her that she would give birth to the Son of God. Wow, a lot of pressure. Her response was that she was a virgin. She knew who she was and that she had never been with a man. So basically her question was, how is this going to be? How is this going to take place? Then in Matthew chapter 1, look at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, we looked at all that last week, before they came together in an intimate relationship, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. The key phrase there is before they came together. While Mary, and this is what you learn from this, Mary was the physical mother of Jesus, however, Joseph was not the physical father of Jesus. And so therefore, a true miracle had taken place. So Jesus was conceived not by Joseph, but by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Now, nowhere in Scripture is this type of birth. You don't find it anywhere. But yet it was predicted 600 years previously. Now think about that. 600 years before it took place. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 7, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now you say, why is that so important? Here's why I believe it's so important. I believe it's important that how Jesus is conceived determines if your salvation is true. If there is a such thing as a salvation that comes from Jesus. I believe it surrounds this whole story. So, the virgin birth challenged. Now, I like, I don't know about you, but there's so many different things I like about the Bible. 
And one thing I like about the Bible is, is many times it just states facts. Now think about it. In the very beginning, what does it say? In the beginning, God. Doesn't go into all this detail. Doesn't try to uh, say it's not so. It just states it. Other places in the Bible. And the sea parted. And then we come to this one. Behold, the virgin shall be with child. The Bible just states it. As a matter of fact, it's one of those things where why would we not believe it if we're talking about a supernatural God, a sovereign God? And then we come, really, when you begin to understand, how has this virgin birth been challenged? It was challenged as far back as the second century. There's a Jewish book that was written that basically said that Mary... Mary had an illegitimate son through a Roman soldier. And so we see that the, accu the accusations came back as far as the second century, as far as being written down, how it would look. And, and, and of course, we know from God's word, that's just not the case. But I want you to think about this. The virgin birth was challenged by initially Joseph himself. Joseph himself. Now, can you imagine Getting the word from Mary, like I said last week. Can you imagine? Hey, Joseph, just want to let you know, um, I'm carrying a baby. Don't be alarmed. It's, it's of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know about you. Uh, the, <laughs> there's all kinds of things that would go through your mind. And, and then we come to the story. Matthew 1, verse 19. We saw this last week. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man. This is a man who always wanted to do the right thing. And not wanting to make her a public example was minded to put her away secretly, to attempt to protect her integrity, to protect her. His only thoughts must have been, and it had to be, the natural way of looking at this is she's been with someone else. She's breached the contract of, of being betrothed. And so all these things must be in his mind. And we know from last week that he really had three options. He, he could have criminally had her charged for adultery. He could have divorced her in, in all her shame, or he could stay with her. And you know what he did, as we saw last week? He stayed with her. And literally, as, a, as the world and even their community in which they lived in saw her, they saw him with the same shame that was bestowed upon her. So we see that Joseph initially challenged it. And then secondly, the virgin birth has been challenged by science. You say, how can you be so sure science would challenge it? Because science only looks at natural means. Science only looks at something that can be proven empirically. And so when you begin to say, okay, how does this uh, brush up against science, this whole idea of a virgin birth? We know that certain species are capable of doing that, but we know that human beings are not. And so science would challenge the virgin birth. But what about the cults? It's been challenged by the cults. The Jehovah Witnesses would tend to deny the virgin birth since Jesus was no greater than any other prophet of Scripture. The Mormon church would also tend to deny the virgin birth since there's no difference than what we ourselves are capable of becoming as what Jesus is, God's. In the Journal of Discourses, uh, Discourses, the Mormon church scholarly journal, it states this, the birth of the Savior was as natural as the birth of our children. It was the result of natural action. The doctrine is known, what they call, as adoptionism. That Jesus was born through a natural means, and at some point in his life, he adopted him to be his son. So, we see that it has been challenged, but it's also been challenged in ways that 
we probably never would have thought. It's been challenged by the church. The church has challenged it. 78% of Protestants believe in the virgin birth, and I think that's key to understand. I think maybe uh, that, that may not be a bad percent, but here's where it gets sad. With, by the time you go down through the next generations, only 51% of millennials believe in the virgin birth, in the miracles of Scripture. And so we see there's a battle that's being lost when it comes to the theology of who Jesus is as the generations continue. Now, the Bible, however, is very clear. In Matthew chapter 1, look at verse 20. But while he, Joseph, thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And so we see that we can put these challenges to rest because God's word has spoken. It has shown us that this is the means by which or how Jesus came. But then next, the virgin birth concluded. What can we, what can we conclude about Jesus' virgin birth? Why is it important that he was born of a virgin? Now, him being born of a virgin implies that part of him is man and part of him is deity. He's God, okay? Now, that's the first thing I want us to look at. Jesus must be man, okay? If you begin to attempt, and by the way, you, it's hard to do this a lot with Scripture, but logic can take you a long ways in some of the Scripture and what you'll find. You'll have miracles that will soon follow a lot of logic. And as you begin to understand why Jesus had to be the God-man, logic can actually take you there even though there's so many miracles associated with it. So look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So again, virgin born, had to be virgin born. What was the implication? What was the need? That sins might be forgiven. Now, which brings us to the question, why did Jesus have to become a man? Why did he have to come in? Now, think about it. Since it is man that sinned, it must be a man that pays the penalty for sin. Now, think about it. The penalty of sin involves, or it appears to be, the suffering of the body and the soul. And so, therefore, only a man appears to be qualified to bear the suffering for sin. An essential element is saving human, mankind is to fulfill the law of God. So if you say, okay, what do we need a Savior? Well, God put a law out there and says, this is what perfection looks like. And if you're not perfected in this, and you're not there in perfection, if you don't keep the law fully, then you've come up short. You're considered a sinner at that point. You say, man, God is being harsh. No, God's done everything in his power to, to help us overcome that sin. But here's what's amazing. The birth of Jesus, the reason it's so different than the other supernatural births is because the way it came about, he was not born with a sin nature. He wasn't born with a sin nature. Every other person who's ever walked the face of the earth, apart from Adam and Eve, and that became them, have a sin nature. We're all little sinners. My grandson, the little liar, that's going out there telling people, 
all these things. I mean, it's so natural. It's right there. And yet we see there must be perfection. So therefore, there was a man. He was the God-man who came on the scene. He fulfilled the law perfectly. And he is only the one, he's the only one who can be sacrificed for our sin. And then secondly, not only does Jesus must not only be a man, but Jesus must be God. In John 1, 1, look at what it says. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh. I want you to think about that. The implication here is that deity came in flesh. Came in flesh. And dwelt among us. Lived among us. We based on the story of Jesus Christ for 33 years. And we beheld his glory. Now, what does that tell us? That Jesus predates Bethlehem. He came to us, and why did he come? Because of our greatest need, we needed a Savior. So then why must he be deity? To save us from our sin, Christ had to undergo the wrath of God on our behalf. Now, a lot of people kind of don't understand what was going on on the cross. When you begin to read the story of what's happening on the cross, and you, you, you put it in the context of, of, of a good theology you find in Romans, here's what we find. When Jesus was hanging there on the cross, our sin was placed upon him. Did you know that? You, many people, yeah, I, I get that. So therefore, he was going to be our sacrifice. Our sin was placed upon him. But guess what? That sin had to be punished. God's wrath then came and punish that sin upon him. Now, I don't know about you, but something that extreme, logically to me, tells me a man can't withhandle that or handle that. And so basically, what are we looking at? I think we have to be logically looking at deity. So it's a fate that only deity could endure. If Jesus had merely been a sinless man and not deity... He would have only died for just one sinner, and that would have been himself. Because he did fit it for perfection. But God allowed him to be the sacrifice for us all. So now we have a mediator between God and man. Must himself be God if he's to bring men to God. And Hebrews talks about that. Being the mediator between God and man. And he's bringing them together. Now here's what we need to understand. A 20-foot chasm cannot be bridged with an 8-foot ladder. And you see, our works, no matter how good we think we are, no matter how much of the law we think we've kept, is always going to come short. It's the 20-foot ladder, the, 20, the infinite ladder that Jesus provides that gets us through the chasm on the other side to make us right before God. So if Jesus Christ was to save us, he had to be God and man at the same time. Therefore, the virgin birth, Mary giving him his manhood, the Holy Spirit, his deity, is both essential and necessary for salvation. Next, the virgin birth considered. And we see, first of all, Jesus is the predicted one. Jesus, coming the way he did, connected the Old Testament with the New Testament. Matthew, when he writes, we said this last week, is writing to a Jewish audience. He's basically saying, hey, Jews, let me convince you Jesus is the Messiah. Look at how he fits the Old Testament. 
Look at all the things he's doing. And what is he doing? He's going back, grabbing the prophecies that are in the Old Testament, bringing them into that day, and assigning them to Jesus because it's displayed right there. He fulfilled most of those prophecies. Over 300 he fulfilled in his first coming. He'll, he'll conclude the rest of those in his second coming. But in the first coming, we see it. So look at what Matthew writes in Matthew 1, verse 22. He says, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, the Old Testament, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now, I don't understand how this happens, but I've read some things that mathematicians have done. Anybody in here a mathematician? I mean, you can go and just work with numbers, and I love it, and it's just one of those great things. Some of you are looking at some. I would think y'all would be a pretty boring people to be honest. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> but I want, you, I want you to think about some of the things mathematicians do. And there's one thing that one mathematician in particular, and you can see some of his writings there, but there are over 300 prophecies that directly point to the Messiah about the first coming. What this mathematician did is he, he took eight that were deliberately seen in the life of Jesus, okay? All of them, by the way, were seen, but there's eight in particular that you see. First of all, we see the time of his birth. We see in Daniel uh, chapters 8 and 9. He would be born in Bethlehem, which was Micah. He would be born of a virgin, Isaiah. We just read that. He would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, which we know comes later, Zechariah. He would be mocked in Psalms. He would be crucified. We find that in other places. Uh, he, he would be pierced with a sword. We find that in Psalms. He would die with the wicked, but he would be buried with the rich. That's kind of interesting. He was. The sleep, the, the, those on both sides of him, and he was he was buried in a rich man's tomb. Isaiah 53 tells us that. The chances of this happening the way it did with just these eight prophecies is one and whatever that number right there is. Now, that's pretty impressive when you look at that number. I did a little research, and that is 10 trillion sextillion. Okay? There's really no name given to it. You have to put some things together to get there. Now, I find that remarkable. <laughs> when you begin to see some things, especially through the lens of how this Bible has been written in such a way that it is. So we see that he's a predicted one. Second of all, the phrase God with us determines that Jesus is God in our presence. He's God in our presence for 33 years. Think about it. The Alpha and Omega, the beginning end, there's no beginning for him. There's no, never will be an end for him. Yet he brings himself to this place called the earth. And he brings himself in such a way that he identifies with those who are sinful. He identifies with those who are evil. He sees the disparity of this world. And he lives in it for 33 years. How many of you that just, does that not blow your mind? And that is what he's done. So in John 1.1, look at it again. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. Colossians tells us that. Genesis, if you read it carefully, will tell you that. And in Him was life, and the life was a light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. He came in, think about it, He's wrapped in clothing, but we're beholding His glory. He comes in, <coughs> and that dark. Excuse me, that darkness 
could not comprehend him. Yet he was light. And you know what the darkness was? The darkness was primarily the religious of the day. They were the ones in all the darkness. And then it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Next, we see the virgin birth constructed. How did it all come about? I want you to think about it. Do you think God had a plan all along? Or do you think he was like, I don't know. Why don't we see what will happen? Let's, let's go over here and talk to this young girl, see if she'll move the plan along. By the way, she's got someone she's connected to. Let's kind of bring him into the story. Now, this has been planned all the way back. God knows what he's doing. And the first thing we find, like we saw last week, the virgin birth is constructed by obedience. By obedience. In verse 19 of Matthew chapter 1, we read that Joseph was a just man. Some of your translations say he was a righteous man. He was an upright man. He was a man who wanted to do the right thing. And with him choosing to be a part of the story, he chose obedience. And by choosing obedience, he identified with the shame that Mary was dealt with. Think of how beautiful that story is. In verse 24 of Matthew chapter 1, Then Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel told him, commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph's simple obedience moved along the plan and the will of God. And then there's the other. The virgin birth is also constructed by humility. And we saw that over two weeks ago. Mary's humility. You know, when all this was coming down, to, are y'all aware that, that, that Mary kind of wrote a song to the Lord? I want you to listen to some of it. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in my God, my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. Do you know that she was writing here, and this is not the reality in which she was living when she was writing there? She was already feeling the shame of the community. She was already feeling all this. And yet she's writing about something that will come. You know why? Because she was in humility moving along the plan of God. And she said, one day, they'll call me blessed. Right in the middle of all the shame she was facing. You see, so many times, the reason we don't move the plan of God any further than we do is because we're too caught up with what we think is obvious around us. And there is always a bigger picture. There's always something bigger that God is up to than where you're living. Whether you're living in your shame or whatever it may be, there's always something bigger. In Luke chapter 1, this is part of it. She says, my soul magnifies. I've already read that. Next, the virgin birth constructed by faith. Joseph and Mary became a part of God's plan by reaching out by faith. Now, I don't know about you, but virgin birth never happened. So, so many more questions than answers, wouldn't you agree? And yet, they reached out with obedience, humility, and faith. In Luke chapter 1, Mary says this, Behold the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Matthew chapter 1, verse 24 then Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. Did they see the full picture? 
Did they understand it completely? Absolutely not. How could they? And yet, by faith, they continued the pursuit of God in such a way that they moved the plan of God further, closer to what God desired. So here's the conclusion. Without the virgin birth of Jesus, I believe, and I think many people would agree, it only makes sense. It's good theology. Without it, there is no invitation to salvation. You got to have it. I hope that's one thing God's word has shown you here this morning. And then here's what we need to understand as it relates to it. The miraculous birth of Jesus made possible his sinless life. How else would you describe his life if he wasn't virgin born, if there wasn't something miraculous? No one's ever lived the sinless life. But he did, which led to his sacrificial death and then eventually to his victorious resurrection. So here's the RSVP. Have you accepted God's invitation, made possible by his son's miraculous birth, to join him this Christmas? And here's what I mean by that. If there's someone here today, maybe you've never come to a point in your life where you said, you know something? I've tried things my way. I've tried doing this. I've tried doing that. You know something? I'm just sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm tired of what this world's throwing at me. Maybe you just need Jesus. <laughs> because you do. Doesn't mean all these things are going to go away. But man, I'm telling you, God has a plan for you. There's a purpose. There's a place to belong. God has so much more for you if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And you say, well, what does that entail? It entails turning from your sin. Turning from your sin, admitting you need a Savior, the one that came by this birth, and, and admitting your sin and turning to Him by faith and placing your faith and belief in Him. That's how you do it. That's how you start the journey. And if there's someone here today, I hope you'll come and, and, and let us talk further with you about that. But secondly, maybe you're here today, and, 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 and here's the question. Are, are you ready to take communion this morning? Did you know the Bible says that we need to take that very seriously because it's holy unto the Lord? It's holy unto the Lord when we come to take communion. Because you know what we're doing? We're identifying with something that is most holy. We're identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're identifying mostly with the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. And as believers, communion is for believers, followers of Jesus, as those people we are identifying with the bread and the blood and, and, the, and the wine, the, his body and the wine and, and his blood. And the thing we need to understand is that is a very serious moment between you and God. So right now, I just want to ask you, sitting there where you are, if you will, just bow your heads and just reflect on where God has you right now or where you are with God. I'm going to ask our prayer partners to go ahead and come to the front if you'll come. Maybe you need someone to pray with you in these moments. We're going to leave a little time here for reflection. Our prayer partners will be here at the front. Do what God's calling you to do. Would you take these moments, please?
prayer partners can be seated now. We're about to take communion, so if you'll pull out the little cup there. I want to read some verses to you. In Romans chapter 5, some of the most beautiful words in God's Word says this, But when we were still without strength, when there was nothing we could do about our situation, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. Powerful words, beautiful words for those who know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. So at this time, like for you to take off the top tab, there's two tabs there. This will get you to the wafer. And we understand that the night before he went to the cross, that he had a meal with the disciples. And that's there, that's where he instituted what we're doing today. That all stemmed around remembering what he did on their behalf. What they did. I can't think of a better time to do this than right here when he came into the world to set it all in motion. So right now, as Jesus said, take and eat the bread. It represents my body, which was broken for you. Next, we know he took the wine, the juice. And he said, basically, this is my blood that was shed for you. And also the new covenant that I have for you. That path for your salvation to take place. It was made possible by the sacrifice of the body and the shedding of blood. And he said, eat. He said, eat and then drink. Father, we just come to you. And we thank you so much for who you are and the price that you paid on our behalf. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the way that he came to this world to, to take care of a need that none of us could, could fix. We were hopeless until you came into this world to live that perfect life, to die that sacrificial death, and to be raised in victory with that resurrection. Father, we praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us?